This week, TPC Group files pre-arranged Chapter 11 with proposed $450 million of rights offerings. Service King aims to restructure unsecured notes to fund new $160 million to $165 million converts. Debtor Talon Montana seeks to avoid transfer of $900 million of asset sale proceeds to former parent. ATM manufacturer Debold Nixdorf and lenders aim for a comprehensive capital structure fix. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high yield to stress that and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. Julian Boulan will be joining me for the Week in Review. Having reached the official halfway point of 2022, for this week's Deep Dive, we take a look back on some of last year's leading trends in the leveraged loan market in a replay of a webinar where Peter Washkowitz, head of America's Covenants, discusses the continued evaporation of lender protections and the expansion of borrower flexibility in the leveraged loan market in 2021. It's Friday, June 3rd. Shortly after Town Energy Supplies Chapter 11 filing, debtor Talon Montana filed an adversary complaint seeking to avoid the transfer of approximately $900 million of asset sale proceeds to former parent PPL Corp as a fraudulent conveyance. The adversary proceeding is the fourth lawsuit filed since 2018 related to the challenge transfer. Now, the Talon debtors are seeking to bring prior suits filed in Montana and Delaware State Courts, the Southern District of Texas Bankruptcy Court, where the new adversary proceeding and the Talon Chapter 11 cases are pending. Talon Montana says the upstream of consideration from a 2014 sale of its hydroelectric generation assets to the former parent left it insolvent with only loss-making coal-fired generation assets. Beyond constituting a constructive fraudulent conveyance, Talon Montana has argued that the actions of PPL and directors and officers at the time give rise to actual fraud claims. In pre-bankruptcy filings, PPL has challenged Talon's narrative, arguing that the current equity sponsor, Riverstone, contracted not to receive the hydroelectric sale proceeds in connection with the contemporaneously negotiated spinoff and failed to bring a claim within the party's negotiated post-spinoff identification period. PPL also claims that the Montana subsidiary was solvent as a member of the larger business that became Talon Energy Supply and suggests that Riverstone's post-spinoff actions are responsible for any alleged insolvency, pointing, for example, to a $500 million dividend in 2017. TPC Group, a Houston-based producer and processor of intermediate and specialty chemicals and fuel derivatives and several affiliates, filed petitions for Chapter 11 Wednesday in the Bankruptcy Court for the District of Delaware to pursue a pre-arranged financial restructuring pursuant to an RSA supported by the company's equity sponsors and an ad hoc group of note holders represented by Paul Hastings and Evercore. Approximately 92% of the company's 205.5 million outstanding 10.875% secured notes due 2024, and approximately 80% of the company's $930 million outstanding 10.5% secured notes due 2024 are signatories to the RSA. Sponsors FR Sawgrass LP and SK Sawgrass LP indirectly hold or control 71.2% and 27% of the existing interest in TPC Holdings Inc., and they and certain of their affiliates are RSA parties. An ad hoc group of non-consenting minority bondholders is organized with holders including Bayside Capital and Cerebrus. The minority note holders are represented by Milbank and Pacholsky. The RSA provides for capital infusions of $450 million under two rights offerings, a $323 million delayed draw dip financing and a $200 million asset-based revolving dip facility. Under the treatment envisioned by the RSA, first lien debt would be paid in full via the dip financing. The company's 10.5% secured notes would receive a $350 million paydown plus reorganized equity and debt. GUX, if the class votes to accept the plan, would receive $5 million in cash plus an additional $5 million in future cash subject to the company achieving its 2024 adjusted EBITDA projections, and trade obligations would be treated in the ordinary course. 
The company attributes its Chapter 11 filing to the explosion of its P&O facility in November 2019, which led to a shutdown in production that has still not resumed, as well as the loss of about half the company's historical crude C4 processing capacity. The facility was repurposed into a storage terminal, and the company terminated more than 60 employees and had significant expenses related to legal and regulatory compliance and other safety efforts. The state of Texas commenced a civil action, which is still ongoing, against TPC alleging violations of the Texas Clean Air Act and Texas Water Code, and various other federal, state, and local governments have initiated investigations of the incident at the facility. At the conclusion of a lengthy contested hearing on Thursday, Judge Craig Goldblatt indicated that he will approve the TPC Group debtor's definancing motion on an interim basis, including the proposed roll-up of pre-petition note claims subject to inclusion of language that will preserve all parties' ability to challenge the roll-up and the court's ability to fashion an appropriate remedy in the event of a successful challenge. The DIP motion had drawn objections from 10.5% secured note holders, Bayside Capital and Cerebrus, and Mockingbird Credit Opportunities targeting the roll-up of the 10.875% secured notes on an interim basis, arguing that non-consenting note holders offered a competing proposal with better economics. According to cleansing materials reviewed by Reorg, Service King executed a transaction support agreement dated Friday, May 27th for it to implement its restructuring either through a prepackaged Chapter 11 filing or on an out-of-court basis. If the company obtains the consent of holders of 100% of the revolver and term loans and all unsecured note holders participate in the exchange offer, the transaction will be implemented out of court. If the company obtains a consent of less than 100%, but more than 66.67% of the revolver and term loans, and less than 100% of unsecured note holders exchange their bonds, then the deal will be implemented in court. The company is making great efforts to implement the restructuring on an out-of-court basis, according to sources. Unsecured note holders will be fully equitized to receive 100% of new equity, but they will be diluted particularly by a $160 to $165 million convertible securities offering open to the same holder base. The converts will be converted to 99% of new stocks, subject to dilution by any management incentive plan. Revolver and term lenders will receive take-back paper with amended credit agreements. Diebold Nixdorf and its lenders and bondholders are aiming for a comprehensive capital structure overhaul. The ATM manufacturer and connected commerce services provider is seeking a new ABL facility, but needs to navigate existing debt seniority, lien, and maturities, according to sources. Advisors to the crossholder group recently submitted an informal outline of terms to the company, but neither the advisors nor the crossholders have become restricted, they said, adding that advisors to an ad hoc group of term loan lenders are not restricted either. Management noted on earnings calls and at industry conferences that the company intends to replace its existing RCF with an ABL and that it has $1 billion worth of receivables and inventory to back it. However, Diebold must also account for the fact that the secured notes and Term B loan are PERI and that all debt instruments mature in less than three years, with the unsecured bonds notably maturing before the secured bonds. Any potential refinancing or liability management transactions, including the incurrence of an ABL, likely require the consent of a majority of secured note holders, as well as a requisite number of credit agreement lenders, according to the sources. Top Red Stories this week included... Bondholder DeMeo seeks dismissal of Moby's meritless tortious interference action, says company presents ordinary creditor behaviors nefarious. Avaya's limited options for addressing 2023 convertibles, new coverage of Novellus, infrastructure and energy alternatives, Quanta services, skills. What Jarkasi ALJ decision means for bankruptcy courts, a window on Delaware dissolution proceedings and LTL's $2,500 an hour appellate counsel. New bill would require Puerto Rico regulatory approval for all PREPA bond issues, aims to shield PREPA pensions from restructuring. Kathy Taz on vacation this week, so I'll be handling the week ahead from Forest Hills, Queens, the former home of the U.S. Open. On June 7th, we have a hearing in Sanchez Energy, now known as Mesquite Energy, to approve a global settlement between Sanchez, its affiliate SN Caterina, and Evolve Transition Infrastructure, and its subsidiary Caterina Midstream. 
The settlement relates to a dispute arising out of Sanchez's sale of Katarina Midstream to Evolve, as well as a related gathering agreement. Also on June 7th, we have a hearing on Just Energy's motion to set a timeline for approval of its plan of compromise and arrangement in its Canadian Companies Creditors Arrangement Act proceedings. On June 9th, we have oral arguments in the GOC shareholder Sixth Circuit Appeal of a Western District of Michigan District Court Judgment Order dismissing their suit for failure to state a claim against the U.S. Department of the Treasury and the Federal Housing Finance Agency, or FHFA. The shareholders say the appeal carries significant implications for the future of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and both parties agree that important legal issues are involved. The suit challenges the validity of the net worth sweep implemented by a Third Amendment to the GSE's preferred stock purchase agreements in the wake of the U.S. housing crisis more than a decade ago. The shareholders allege that an unconstitutional limitation on presidential removal of the FHFA director except for cause entitles them to an injunction that would restore the value of their holdings. The GOC shareholders contend that if not for the unconstitutional removal provision, President Donald Trump would have taken steps toward either zeroing out Treasury's liquidation preference or converting Treasury's senior preferred stock to common stock. On June 9th, we have a continued evidentiary hearing on issues related to whether Just Energy's payments to ERCOT were unauthorized postage and transfers. ERCOT and the Public Utility Commission of Texas have asked the bankruptcy court to dismiss or alternatively abstain from deciding Just Energy's adversary complaint in its Chapter 15 case seeking to recover at least $274 million out of the $335 million that ERCOT invoiced in connection with Winter Storm Uri in February 2021. On June 10th, in Talon Energy, we have a hearing on modification of the automatic stay to proceed with litigation arbitration regarding the voting requirements to retire coal-fired generation facilities located in Coal Strip, Montana, that are co-owned by debtor Talon, Montana, and non-debtor Pacific Northwest Utilities. Also on June 10th, we have a hearing on Hess Corp subsidiaries, Honks Inc.'s motion seeking to appoint Barbara J. Hauser, retired bankruptcy judge, as a legal representative for future asbestos claimants in this Chapter 11 case, the appointment of a future claimant's representative is one of the conditions of implementing a channeling injunction under the Bankruptcy Code. Having reached the official halfway point of 2022, for this week's Deep Dive, we take a look back on some of last year's leading trends in the leveraged loan market in a replay of a webinar where Peter Washkowitz, head of America's Covenants, discusses the continued evaporation of lender protections and the expansion of borrower flexibility in the leveraged loan market in 2021. Today, we'll discuss loan market trends. Um, and, uh, and my name is Peter Washkowitz, and, um, and we, will get started, uh, we will get started shortly. Uh, today, we will provide an overview of uh, the last year's loan market trends and discuss the continued evaporation of lender protections and the expansion of borrower flexibility in the leveraged loan market. We will answer questions at the end, so please feel free to submit your questions at any time using the Q&A widget located at the bottom of your screen. Uh, let's get started. Um, and today we will go over um, MFN protection, unrestricted subsidiary transfers, reallocation mechanics, uh, leverage-based value leakage baskets, and potential trends to look out for. Um, followed by our Q&A session. Um, next slide. Um, so over the last six years, and then probably longer than that, uh, terms and conditions under credit agreements have become more and more favorable for borrowers. Um, as demand for loans have fa has far outstripped supply, uh, borrowers have been in a much stronger negotiating position from which to drive the terms and credit agreements. Um, this has resulted in an unceasing deterioration of lender protections and an expansion of borrowers' flexibility under credit agreements. 
negative covenant baskets, um, the size of negative covenant baskets have increased and leverage-based incurrence tests have loosened. Um, so really the, the main trend um, in 2021, I would say was just a continuation of the same trend that we have seen in the last five years, which is a deterioration of lender protections and an expansion of uh, borrower flexibility. Um, next slide. Um, but one, one kind of theme, uh, a new theme that we, we did pick up on last year was the increasing incidences of um, illusory protections um, in credit agreements, um, where on first sight, it looked like um, a credit agreement included a certain type of protection. But upon closer inspection, that, that protection uh, really was very little protection, if any at all. Um, uh, in conjunction with that, we also saw a number of provisions in credit agreements that almost created illusory capacity um, in which $1 of capacity uh, could be converted into $2 of different capacity. Um, so we'll get started with uh, MFN protection as, as the first example and uh, each one of the other subjects that we will discuss kind of uh, follow on this theme. Uh, next slide, please. So um, for MFN protection, historically, um, MFN protection uh, ensured that if a borrower ever incurred additional pari passu term loan debt that was priced higher than the initial term loans, um, the pricing of those initial term loans would be increased such that the difference between the newly incurred higher price term loans and the initial term loans was never more than 50%, uh, 50 basis points. Uh, but over the last few years, uh, sponsors have continually chipped away at this protection um, in a number of different ways. Um, first, they, they increased the pricing differential uh, from 50 basis points to between 75 and 100 basis points. Uh, they imposed an expiration, uh, which is known as a sunset, on the MFN protection of between 6 and 24 months. Uh, recently, it's, it's really kind of uh, um, gotten to be between 6 and 12 months. Um, and they have also chipped away the scope of the MFN protection uh, to the point where it might only apply to a certain portion of incremental debt, or um, it excludes incremental debt incurred for uh, to fund acquisitions or uh, based on the maturity of the uh, incremental debt. Uh, next slide, please. So the first example of this type of illusory MFN protection, uh, we can see it in Evercommerce's credit agreement. Um, Evercommerce is a Silver Lake-owned portfolio company, uh, which in July, uh, which on July 6th uh, in 2021, um, entered into a new credit agreement. Um, under the credit agreement, um, the company was allowed to incur pari incremental debt, uh, not to exceed 130 million, uh, the greater of 130 million, 100% of EBITDA, plus amounts reallocated from the general debt basket. Uh, plus voluntary prepayments of the term loans, um, and plus additional leverage-based debt uh, in compliance with the four and a half times first lien leverage ratio. Um, the, the, the agreement uh, gave initial term loan lenders 100 basis points of MFN protection uh, with a six-month sunset from any higher-priced PARI incremental term loans um, only incurred under the free and clear incremental amount, which was defined as the component that allows the greater of 130 million and 100% uh, of EBITDA amounts reallocated from the general debt basket and uh, amounts based on voluntary prepayments. So only from that basket could MFN protection apply, but the MFN protection only applied for incremental debt um, in excess of the greater of 130 million and 100% of EBITDA. So in and of itself, it's a pretty weak protection given it only lasts for six months. 
Uh, it's only limited to a certain subset of incremental debt. Um, but uh, here, because the MFN protection only applied to the basket allowing the greater of 130 million and 100% of EBITDA, and it only applied to debt in excess of the greater of 130 million and 100% uh, of EBITDA, um, effectively, the company really couldn't give the MFN protection without breaching um, the incremental debt provisions. Um, you know, if, if it incurred, let's just say, 131 million of, of incremental debt, it would uh, it would have to provide lenders with the MFN protection, but it's not allowed to incur the 131 million. So this is kind of an, a perfect example of where you know you see the provision and it it it, it purports to provide MFN protection. But um, upon closer inspection, um, it only provides MFM protection if the company essentially breaches the credit agreement. So, so truly illusory protection. Uh, next slide, please. Um, the MFN protection in uh, in Sovos in Sovos Brands credit agreement um, uh, provides uh, provided uh, uh, MFN protection. Here it was is also twelve months sunset, uh, sunset, but it did provide uh, the MFN protection for leverage based incremental debt, um, uh, and it was seventy five basis points of MFN protection. Um, however, like you know, like most credit agreements, Sovos Brands credit agreement allowed the borrower to incur incremental debt under the free and clear basket, um, and then immediately reclassify that debt um, as having been incurred uh, under the leverage component of the incremental debt basket. Um, and in so doing, the company could replenish capacity under the uh, under the free and clear basket. Um, now, in the MFN provisions in Sovos Brands credit agreement, it explicitly said that um, that it, uh, the MFN protection would not apply to incremental debt um, that was reclassified as having been incurred as leverage based debt. So here is another example where. The company could incur incremental debt under the free and clear basket, and as soon as it's able to incur debt under uh, the leverage-based component, even if it's the same day, um, it could instantly reclassify that debt, replenish the free and clear basket, um, and completely avoid having to provide MFN protection for lenders. Um, this kind of formulation is actually fairly common in, uh, in sponsored credit agreements. Um, given most of the MFN protections only apply uh, for leverage-based debt, um, and um, almost all credit agreements allow companies to reclassify incremental debt. So this is a far more common example than EverCommerce MFN protection, which is we've only seen about two or three credit agreements. Um, and this kind of shows that that it's almost become uh, you know intrinsic in these sponsored credit agreements. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, two recent credit agreement, uh, two recent term sheets that we reviewed um, also had MFN protection that applied uh, to leverage-based uh, incremental debt only, and it was uh, it was a six-month MFN protection. But here, it only applied to leverage-based incremental debt um, in excess of 200% of uh, the borrower's closing date EBITDA. Um, so here, um, it, it's kind of taken to such an extreme. Uh, given that um, uh, the the leverage the leverage the leverage test that the company had to meet was its closing date first lien leverage ratio, um, and it's hard to imagine that the company would be able to deleverage uh, so quickly after closing 
then it would then be able to incur debt um, equal to 200% of EBITDA and remain in uh, pro forma compliance with its first lien, uh, first lien uh, leverage ratio at closing, all within six months. So, I, I mean, this this is this MFN protection is is virtually also impossible to ever uh, be provided, given that the borrower uh, almost certainly will not be able to incur the amount of peri incremental debt um, necessary uh, for the MFN provision to to be triggered. Uh, so, those are just kind of three examples of the illusory MFN protections that we've seen over the last year. Um, again, the 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 mechanic in Silva's brand's credit agreement is by far the most common. Um, this one based on 200% of closing date EBITDA, we've only just seen recently in a few term sheets. Um, and the one in Evercommerce's credit agreement um, where it only provides MFM protection for incremental debt based on uh, incurred under the free and clear basket, we've only seen a few times uh, and have not seen any recently. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so the next kind of topic where we have seen illusory protections has been um, in material IP transfer prohibitions. Um, of course, most people are, are familiar with uh, J. Cruz transfers of unrestricted uh, of material IP to unrestricted subsidiaries. PetSmart followed, Travelport followed, and uh, IP transfers to unrestricted subs are you know a very big concern for investors. Um, I'd say well over half the calls that we have with our subscribers are about companies' ability to transfer. Uh, material IP to, to unrestricted subsidiaries. Um, so while we have seen an increase in the, in the number of credit agreements that have provided some form of uh, some limitation or even outright prohibition on uh, the company's ability to transfer material IP to unrestricted subs, um, like MFN protection, you kind of need to dig into the provisions because what, what seems like uh, good protection uh, might be anything but. So uh, next slide, please. Uh, so coming back to Sobos Brands credit agreement, um, you can imagine Sobos Brands <coughs> credit agreement is one of the more or probably most aggressive credit agreements we, we reviewed in 2021. Um, in, in that credit agreement, it had a prohibition on loan parties um, transferring material IP to unrestricted subsidiaries. So loan parties is uh, the borrower and the guarantors. Um, and as we've highlighted here, the, the prohibition only applied to the borrower and the guarantors um, and, and said that they were unable to, they were prohibited from transferring material IP to unrestricted subs. However, uh, as you can see in the slide, the credit agreement also allowed um, un unlimited investments within the restricted group, including non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries. Um, so essentially this is kind of, this would, this provides a company uh, a way to completely circumvent the material IP transfer prohibitions um, because it would allow the company to transfer 100% of its uh, IP to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries. Um, and since the, the material IP transfer prohibitions only apply to loan parties uh, and not uh, non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries, the non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries would then uh, be perfectly uh, able and permitted to transfer all of that material IP, which was just transferred to them, to, uh, to unrestricted subsidiaries, and thereby uh, rendering the material IP transfer prohibitions uh, moot. We, we've seen this in a, in a number of, of credit agreements. Um, and this also goes to another, another kind of trend that we have seen uh, pick up in 2021. It's not new, but um, a lot of credit agreements these days are allowing unlimited investments within the restricted group, including non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries. 
Uh, while this has been common in high yield bonds for as long as I can remember, um, traditionally credit agreements provided a cap or imposed a cap on companies' ability to transfer assets to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries. Um, although non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries are restricted by the credit agreement's negative covenants uh, to the extent collateral assets are transferred to them, uh, the liens on those assets uh, would be automatically released. So that's kind of why credit agreements have imposed caps on, on those types of transfers. But we are seeing an increase in credit agreements that allow unlimited uh, transfers within the restricted group. Uh, next slide, please. So um, another recent example um, in, a, in a private credit agreement we, we reviewed um, had a, uh, a limitation on material IP transfer, uh, on material IP transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries. But in this agreement, the, the prohibition uh, provided that um, it was only included in the, uh, the conditions to designate an unrestricted subsidiary. And it provided that after giving effect to the designation, um, no unrestricted subsidiary will own or hold exclusive rights in material IP. Um, so it seems like a like a, a good a good um, a good protection. However, because it was only um, one of the conditions to designate an unrestricted subsidiary, um, arguably, um, to the extent the company already had a designated an unrestricted subsidiary, or it now designates an unrestricted subsidiary. The, the limitation would not prohibit the company from transferring material IP to those previously designated unrestricted subsidiaries. All it would do is it would just it would it would prohibit the company from designating additional uh, unrestricted subsidiaries. So th this kind of um, you know illusory protection re reinforces the point that in order to have effective controls on uh, companies' ability to transfer uh, material IP or any assets to unrestricted subsidiaries. Uh, there need to be prohibitions both at the time of designation, uh, i.e. you can't uh, designate material IP owning uh, subsidiaries unrestricted. Um, and there also have to be ongoing uh, prohibitions on companies' ability to transfer uh, material IP to already designated uh, unrestricted subsidiaries. Uh, next slide, please. So uh, the next topic is um, is how uh, realloc reallocation mechanics under uh, credit agreements are kind of creating um, are creating additional and almost superficial uh, artificial capacity. So um, you know, for a few years, the, uh, a lot of credit agreements and bonds have allowed uh, borrowers to uh, use their restricted payment capacity to incur additional debt. So if you have a, a $100 million general restricted payment basket, uh, the agreement would allow the borrower to take that 100 million and incur debt instead. Um, this mechanic in and of itself is, is not particularly troublesome given you're kind of giving up your dividend capacity to incur more debt. Um, and you know, depending on, on how you approach uh, credit agreements or, or kind of what is more important to you, um, arguably, you'd rather the borrower increasing its debt capacity and reducing its dividend capacity. So um, again, in and of itself, not a particularly big deal. But um, there have th this reallocation mechanic is now uh, is now being taken to more extremes and and kind of losing that the give up one capacity for uh, an increase in additional capacity feature, which kind of normalizes uh, these types of mechanics. Uh, next slide, please. So in, in, a, in a number of, of sponsored credit agreements, um, I, I'd say it, it's, it's certainly not a, you know, even 50%, but it, it definitely is increasing in, in the number. 
Um, a lot of credit agreements are allowing borrowers to incur debt based on 200% of restricted payment capacity. So if you have a dollar of dividend capacity, you, you can incur $2 of, uh, of debt capacity. Um, so, you know, again, in and of itself, yes, it's a little aggressive, but again, you're giving up dividend capacity for debt capacity. Um, however, um, some recent agreements are now allowing the borrower to make investments using 200% of restricted payment capacity. Um, and, and here is kind of where you start kind of creating artificial capacity. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so take, the, take an example of uh, SNAP One's uh, credit agreement from December 8, uh, 2021. Uh, SNAP One is a KKR portfolio company. Um, the credit agreement, um, it includes a, an available equity amount basket uh, equal to the greater of 55 million and 50% of EBITDA, um, a same size general restricted payment basket. Um, both of those baskets can be used for investments instead. So the, the borrower could, could use uh, the 55 million available equity amount and $55 million general RP basket uh, to incur 110 or to, to make $110 million of transfers. However, the agreement also includes an available RP capacity amount basket um, that is equal to 200% of capacity under the available equity amount and the general restricted payment baskets, among other, uh, other baskets like the post-IPO dividend basket. Um, and that the credit agreement allows the borrower to use the available RP capacity amount um, for investments. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so what happens with that kind of, actually, could you go back to one slide, please? So, sorry. So what happens in, in this example is that, um, you know, if the company just directly used the available equity amount and the general restricted payment basket for investments, again, it has $110 million of capacity. However, if it simply says, okay, I'm going to use those baskets, but I'm going to use them through the available RP capacity amount, all of a sudden that $110 million of capacity becomes $220 million of capacity um, through kind of like a, a, a new paper mechanic where you're kind of designating um, how you're accessing the basket. So it, it, you know, it doesn't really make that much sense where you know, it's the same investment and it's the same baskets. However, just because this, this new mechanic is, is introduced where 100% um, you know, of capacity becomes 200%, all of a sudden the company has uh, 100% more investment capacity than it otherwise would. Uh, next slide, please. Um, another problematic reallocation mechanic is, um, and we're seeing this with increased capacity, is where um, credit agreements are allowing the general prepayment basket um, to be used not only for investments, which, which is fairly typical, but also um, for uh, additional restricted payments and even for additional secured debt. Um, now, again, going back to the, what I said in the beginning, um, the reallocation mechanic in and of itself is not bad because you are, you know, you're giving up $1 of dividend capacity uh, to increase your debt capacity by $1. However, in, in most sponsored credit agreements, um, the prepayment covenant only uh, limits borrowers' ability to voluntarily prepay payment-subordinated debt. Um, and very few companies have any outstanding payment-subordinated debt. So, um, without a reallocation mechanic, uh, most general prepayment baskets are gonna go unused. 
um, unless the company, unless a borrower has, has incurred payment subordinated debt, in which case it may uh, need to rely on that basket. But in 98% of, 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 case, of cases, uh, because companies do not have payment subordinated debt, um, they can take their general uh, prepayment basket, which would again otherwise go unused, and now uh, have additional dividend or debt capacity. Um, and this kind of completely defeats the point of losing capacity in one for gaining capacity in the other. Um, so this is just kind of another reallocation mechanic, which is not, not technically creating additional capacity, but it's really uh, allowing borrowers to use what otherwise would have been kind of useless capacity uh, for, for a, you know, a, a purpose um, that, that could be a, a risk to lenders. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so in credit agreements for, uh, for EverCommerce, which again was a Silver Lake company, in CCC Intelligent Solutions, an advent company, specialty building products, uh, Resolute Fund portfolio company, and Meridian Link, a Tama Bravo uh, portfolio company, um, they allow uh, the borrower to utilize uh, general prepayment capacity to incur additional debt. Um, and in, in all of these cases, uh, the prepayment company only limited the companies from uh, voluntarily prepaying payment subordinated debt, uh, which none of them had. And next slide, please. Um, so the, the kind of last big theme uh, mechanic that, that I wanted to discuss is uh, leverage-based value leakage baskets. And, and these are the baskets in credit agreements that, um, that allow borrowers to, to pay unlimited dividends or transfer an unlimited amount of assets um, if they can meet uh, specified pro forma ratio tests. Um, historically, these baskets have required companies to, to meet pro forma total leverage tests. And, and so, so as to take into account um, all outstanding debt under, the cap, under uh, a company's ca uh, capital structure. Um, an increasing number of agreements, and, and this isn't new to 2021, it's just happening with uh, increased incidents. Um, an increased number of credit agreements are allowing borrowers to pay unlimited dividends and make unlimited investments if they can meet pro forma first lien or uh, secured leverage tests. Uh, the risk here is that, um, you know, in this example, uh, if, if a credit agreement allows a company to pay unlimited dividends, if it can meet a five times first lien leverage test, um, you know, as long as the borrower uh, can meet a five times leverage test right now, it can essentially incur as much junior lien or uh, senior unsecured debt as is permitted under the credit agreement to fund those dividends. Um, and, that, and those incurrences would not affect its ability to pay those unlimited dividends. So that's kind of why um, it's good to have these leverage-based baskets uh, based on total leverage, just so um, funding sources are also taken into account in, in terms of kind of limiting these companies' abilities uh, to make unlimited dividends or, uh, or transfer an unlimited amount of, uh, of assets. So uh, first lien and secured leverage-based uh, value leakage baskets have been included in uh, recent credit agreements by Cincinnati Bell, which is a Macquarie Group uh, portfolio company, and in uh, Signify Health, which is a New Mountain uh, portfolio company. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so another uh, kind of tweak to these leverage-based baskets, which we definitely have been seeing with increased capacity and, and started probably mid-2021, um, I'd say it's probably in uh, over 50% of, of OMs and um, of sponsored OMs and, and term sheets or draft credit agreements that, that we review, 
Um, and which is this is also kind of the the the, the provision that is that is cut the most from final versions of of uh, high yield notes or credit agreements. Um, but a, a new twist on these leverage based baskets is allowing uh, leverage based investments specifically. We've seen a few uh, restricted payments, but mostly uh, investment baskets that allow unlimited investments subject to a pro forma leverage test or as long as um, the company's uh, total leverage first lien or secured ratio is not worse than it was uh, prior to the investment. Um, these ratio not worse baskets um, could lead to a significant uh, value leakage. And I think PetSmart is, is, is the perfect example of how these baskets could be exploited. Um, in 2018, the company transferred a portion of the equity of its Chewy uh, subsidiary to an unrestricted sub and dividended another portion to its sponsors. Um, at the time of those transfers, Chewy was generating negative EBITDA. So um, if the company had had a ratio not worse investment basket or a dividend basket under its debt documents, um, it would have been able to, uh, to transfer or dividend um, all of Chewy out to its sponsors or to an unrestricted sub, uh, given uh, PetSmart's pro forma EBITDA would be higher given it would not be uh, it would not have to include uh, Chewy's negative EBITDA contribution. Um, so while these ratio not worse baskets um, are are a significant risk, they they are they are kind of a significant risk in very limited uh, situations. I, I think probably um, you know where you have a negative EBITDA generating subsidiary, it obviously is a is a is a concern, and and possibly where um, a debt document kind of limits uh, cash netting. Um, because then you have a lot of cash in your balance sheet that is not being used to net uh, for your leverage ratios. And you know you could dividend that or transfer that to an unrestricted sub and your ratios would not decrease given the, uh, the cash had not been, uh, had not been being used for uh, netting in the first place. Uh, so ratio not worse investment baskets um, have been included in uh, recent credit agreements by Cobanta Holding, an EQT portfolio company. Again, CCC Intelligent Solutions, which is an advent portfolio company. Uh, Paya Holdings, a GTCR portfolio company, and again in uh, Signify Health, uh, New Mountain um, portfolio company. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so that 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 those are kind of the big uh, themes that we that we saw in 2021. Um, now, just for kind of a, a few potential emerging trends, and and I want to stress that uh, each of these we've only seen in a in a few two minimum of two. Uh, I'd say maximum of uh, you know less than ten, but but these are uh, particularly concerning if they do kind of start making their way into more and more credit agreements and become kind of accepted terms um, in the market. Um, the first one, which I think is is kind of the mo one of the most extreme provisions I, I've seen in a, in a while in a credit agreement. Um, I've, I've provided the quote in the slide uh, just to summarize. Um, normally, what happens in a credit agreement is where a borrower wants to do an amendment um, and it needs majority consent, it will um, you know, send out um, a consent to each one of its lenders. And um, you know, it needs a majority of, of those lenders to kind of say yes or approve the, the amendment to the extent a lender uh, does not respond to a request to consent, uh, that borrower is deemed to have said no. And the company then needs to still get a majority of consent from all lenders um, and that lender, uh, you know, and that lender has already said no. What this provision does, and, and we've seen this in, in two term sheets recently, and, and we're not sure if it made it into final loan documentation, 
what what this provision does is it says that if a lender does not respond to an amendment request, uh, here is within 10 business days, um, that lender's loans are ignored for purposes of determining majority consent threshold. So traditionally, if you have a, say, $100 million loan and a lender who has $10 million of that loan uh, does not provide uh, consent, um, the borrower still needs to seek, um, you know, 50.1, uh, lenders holding $50.1 million um, of the $100 million of, of loans outstanding to get that consent. What this provision does is it will say, okay, the lender holding $10 million of loans has not responded. So we're going to ignore that, uh, you know, its loans. Therefore, the company needs to uh, find majority consent from lenders holding 90 million of the loans. So it, it completely uh, takes away um, lenders' kind of consent rights um, and, and, and uh, obligates them to proactively uh, reply uh, yes or no for an amendment. It, it, it kind of it's a very aggressive provision, um, and and it really uh, you know puts the onus of, of amendments almost on uh, on lenders uh, on, on the lenders' plates. Um, the next provision we 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 have seen in a few credit agreements um, has been in a number of uh, a number of uh, high yield issuances in in 2021, and it's uh, it's a vote it's a 20% voting mecha- uh, cap mechanic. And what it does is it allows, um, in bonds, it allows the issuer, and in these credit agreements, it, it, it would allow the borrower um, to limit any lender from voting more than 20% of its loans um, or of, of outstanding loans um, in ter- uh, for, any, for any amendment. So um, if a lender owned 30% of, of outstanding debt under a credit facility, um, this provision would allow the borrower to cap that uh, lender from only comprising 20% of, of all lenders. And so it kind of, um, you know, if you have an unfriendly lender, it, it takes away their power to kind of control the, uh, the amendment process. Um, and so again, just like the, the first one, it, it, it's, a, it's a real attack on, on lenders' ability to, uh, to vote or approve of, uh, you know, uh, within, during, the, uh, during the amendment process. Um, the third kind of trend we're seeing, and it's more a theme than a, any specific provision, um, is is more and more are um, more and more provisions allowing borrowers to kind of circumvent the asset sale sweep uh, mandatory prepayment requirements. Uh, traditionally, in credit agreements, um, asset sale sweeps require borrowers to use asset sale proceeds to either repay the term loans um, and, if required, other pari passu debt, or to reinvest in the business. Um, we've seen a few provisions uh, recently that say that um, if at the time of receipt of an of asset sale proceeds, the borrower has um, one dollar or more of restricted payment capacity, um, that uh, the amount of restricted payment capacity it has, um, it can take that amount of asset sale proceeds and not have to use it to either prepay the term loans or reinvest in the business. It doesn't even require the borrower to actually make the restricted payments that it has the capacity for, it just essentially is a a dollar-to-dollar reduction of RP capacity and um, uh, cash proceeds that are required to be used to prepay the the term loans. Um, Another provision we're seeing, and I've heard this is a little more common in European loans, uh, but definitely not in US loans, is um, in addition to to reinvesting asset sell proceeds, the borrower can also take asset sell proceeds and repay debt of non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries. Again, this is uh, 
the, you know, it's an aggressive term. It, it's fairly common in, in bonds, but, but not, definitely not in credit agreements. And it, it's just another way that the borrower can uh, sell valuable assets, reduce the value of the collateral package, um, and not have to either reduce the debt or uh, you know, reinvest the proceeds uh, in its business. Um, the fourth provision we're seeing, and, and we've seen this in, uh, I think, three or four recent credit agreements, um, is, um, is the borrower being allowed to make unlimited investments subject to pro forma compliance with an interest coverage test. Um, remember before, um, traditionally these baskets require pro forma uh, compliance with a total leverage test. We're seeing an increase in first lien and secured uh, leverage tests. Here, this is not even a leverage test at all. It's just a, it's an interest coverage test. Uh, which which generally is 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 far easier for a for a for a company to comply with, and so this is just kind of making it even that much easier for companies to to be able to uh, make unlimited transfers to unrestricted subs or to you know any other uh, any other entities uh, in the form of an investment. The final um, emerging trend we're seeing, and, and we're seeing this in in a decent number of credit agreements. Again, not a majority, but but enough, is that in addition to um, a basket amount of, of debt that is able to be incurred that can mature before the term loans, um, borrowers are being allowed to, are being permitted to incur unlimited amount of early maturing debt um, as long as that debt is incurred um, as leverage-based debt. Um, early maturing debt, you know, it's, it's still pari passu with the initial term loans, but it can have more favorable payment, per, uh, payment provisions just given its accelerated uh, maturity timeline and mandatory prepayments can be allocated to debt that matures earlier than the initial term loans. So they kind of can benefit from uh, mandatory prepayments ahead of the initial term loans. So this is just kind of increasing the borrower's capacity to incur that type of debt um, and clearly at the detriment of initial lenders given that um, they can kind of be primed in terms of mandatory prepayment uh, requirements. Um, so those are kind of the, th those are the themes that we are seeing the most, the themes that we are Hopefully, we won't see as much going forward. Um, but uh, that that you know, in addition to all the flexibility that you know we've all been hearing about for years, these are kind of the themes that we have been seeing uh, recently. Um, so that uh, that concludes the slide portion of our presentation. Um, we will now switch over to Q and A. Um, so let's see what questions have come in so far. Um, okay, so uh, sorry, just give me a second. Um, okay, so the first question is: um, uh, Have you noticed any general trends in terms of actual basket sizes through 2021? Um, yeah, I, um, it's funny that that's asked because I actually have a sheet here of of kind of basket sizes because I realized I had not mentioned those um, in the slides. So yeah, I mean, generally, um, basket sizes are obviously increasing. Um, I, I'd say you know where most credit agreements have uh, negative covenant baskets based on the greater of a fixed amount and a percent of EBITDA. And I'd say kind of you know for the incremental uh, debt basket, um, the EBITDA portion is is, is it's almost ingrained at hundred percent of EBITDA at this point. Um, you know, every now and then we'll see a basket seventy five percent, but I'd say generally it is it's now at hundred percent of EBITDA. Um, for general debt baskets, I'd say that's, you know, it, it used to be, let's say around 40 or 50%. Now we're seeing anywhere from 60 to 75%. It, 
in very aggressive um, deals, we are seeing it even at 100% of EBITDA. Um, the starter basket for builder baskets um, generally is 50, 50%, but we are, we've seen that as high as 75 and 100% in, in a handful, but that's still 50%. Um, the general investment basket, that, that kind of generally follows what the general debt basket is. And then the general restricted payment basket, I'd say, is around uh, 50%. But again, we've seen that anywhere, you know, going up to about 70, 60% to 75%, though we have not seen that um, at 100% yet. But yes, they, they, definitely, uh, they definitely are increasing. Um, so what terms would you have discussed in this webinar a few years ago that have now become ingrained in credit agreements? Um, that's a that's a good question. Um, so you know, I, I think um, I mean I remember a few years ago we um, I I remember thinking that uh, post IPO baskets that allowed uh, dividends based on uh, restricted payment uh, based on market capitalization a percent of market capitalization um, was particularly aggressive just given that uh, you know companies that uh, have public equity. They don't. A lot of times, they 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 certainly do not uh, trade based on the true value of the companies. Um, and you know, last year, you know, in, in an inflated market, um, you know, we could see how those market capitalization based baskets can really significantly increase companies' flexibility to pay dividends. Uh, where that capacity could also be used for debt or transfers. Uh, you know, even bigger risks. But I would say that the you know uh, post IPO baskets based on a percent of uh, of market cap um, are definitely uh, also almost ingrained in credit agreements now. Um, I think sunsets in MFN protection, um, it used to be no sunsets. Um, even through, you know, beginning of last year, I, I would always think that uh, any sunset was aggressive. Um, now, yeah, I think 12 is, is, is pretty common. Um, and so I, I think six is still aggressive, but, but 12 is definitely, uh, uh, appearing in, I'd say, almost uh, more than 50% of credit agreements. So uh, I think those two terms uh, are, are ones uh, that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, so it gives me an opportunity to say, um, I am going, I, I plan on writing an article, kind of getting, addressing all the questions um, that are asked here, just because, you know, take that one, for example, I, I can't really think of, of every single term off the top of my head, but um, once I have some time to think about it, I'll, I'll put it to paper. And uh, so I will put out an article on all these questions, uh, even the ones I have I've answered. Um, all right. So the next one is: um, Do do any of these really aggressive provisions really matter? How many times do companies actually use them? Uh, it's fair enough. Um, yeah. So you know, and I, I think I said this on a, on a previous webinar. Um, you know, even in the beginning of COVID, when when companies were really looking for liquidity and and could have really used a lot of these aggressive provisions that we're, you know, we're constantly talking about and constantly focusing on. Very few actually did. You know, there weren't very many uh, unrestricted subsidiary transfers. Uh, you know, you had the CERTA, Board, Mark, uh, board Riders, and Trimark uh, super priority up to your exchanges, but those were really the only companies that did it, um, even though 99% of credit agreements would have allowed other companies to do that for liquidity. Um, so, yeah, so these provisions, um, we do talk about them a lot, and 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 companies do rarely use them. But um, when they do use them, it it, it is kind of it is a big risk, and and 
you know, lenders kind of get frantic and, and get worried about collateral uh, dilution, collateral loss. So um, I, I, I agree with the with the sentiment of it. Yes, it, it's unlikely that most companies will ever use these, uh, you know, two hundred percent of capacity to to uh, you know transfer two hundred percent of capacity to unrestricted sellers. But if it does happen, um, you know, then it becomes a significant risk. So that's that's kind of why we point them out. But but yes, I'd say the chances of most companies using these holds um, are not are not great. Um, so uh, here's what can I find ongoing trends commentary in your America's covenants offering? Uh, yes, you you definitely can. Uh, we 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 publish I'd say one a one a week or one at least every other week. Um, they are they are tagged as covenant trend articles, and 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 those are obviously a lot more granular, and they focus on you know, one specific, uh, trend, but yes, we, we, uh, we definitely are, um, we definitely are, uh, we, we definitely cover these trends, uh, in our, in our daily coverage. Um, let's see. Um, um okay. So there, uh, there's a question on, um, how any of these provisions are relate to SPACs and then post IPOs. Um, so <clears throat> the uh, the main area of credit agreements where I have seen um, where I have seen kind of SPAC provisions added um, have been in actually the post IPO dividend baskets. So uh, typically those are or traditionally they they had uh, provide capacity based on you know six percent of proceeds received and or seven percent of market capitalization. Um, those have been updated for. Uh, kind of the increase of SPAC IPOs to say that uh, the capacity is, you know, 6% of proceeds received or uh, 6% of the cash that the borrower holds um, upon the closing of the SPAC IPO. So um, yeah, it's, it's not a significant difference, but it just, instead of proceeds received from an IPO, just given when a company does do a SPAC IPO, they don't actually go public. So there, there are no proceeds received. They just treat the proceeds that the company has Upon the merger with the SPAC entity, um, following which they then become a public entity, they treat that cash as essentially the the same as cash received um, in an IPO. Uh, every now and then, you know, uh, the definition of permitted holders or in, in the change of control provisions, um, it will kind of carve out a SPAC IPO as as triggering a change of control. But but besides that, um, I, I have not seen any other provisions that. Um, that deal with with with, with the increasing uh, incidence of SPAC IPOs. Um, so um, I, I, it looks like that is about in. We're actually almost out of time. Um, so that's unfortunately that's all the questions that we do have time for today. Um, as a reminder, Reorg is a global provider of credit intelligence, data, and analytics for law firms, investors, and advisors. If you are already a REARC subscriber, please send any further questions you have on this or other topics to customer success at REARC.com. Uh, remember, a replay with slides will be available on the REARC media page within, uh, within, 24, uh, within 24 hours. And a big thanks to everyone who joined us today. Uh, have a great day, everyone. Thank you again for listening to this REARC Weekly Review. You can find all our podcasts on the REARC.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next Friday.